Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Always Ready podcast. I am your host, Jared Links, and today on this episode, we're actually going to be continuing a conversation that we started last time whenever we talked about the mighty issue of evangelical pragmatism. What we're going to be discussing today is actually what is the antidote to pragmatism? How, how do we actually solve this issue? What what biblical doctrines are pertinent to addressing this 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 problem that plagues so many evangelical churches in our day? But I, I want to give a brief recap here in case you missed that last episode, so that we can kind of dive in in the most productive manner here today. In that episode, we talked a lot about definitionally what is pragmatism, why is this a problem, and uh, what are some examples that we see of pragmatism in our modern day. And so just to give you a couple of ideas, whenever we were going through a few definitions of pragmatism, we discussed areas such as the fact that it is that, that a claim is true if and only if it is useful. That's one of the primary tenets of pragmatism. So instead of coming to Scripture, asking what is God revealed in His Word in order to test the truthfulness of something, what pragmatism wants us to do is to ask, how, how is it in experience? So ultimately, it is making human experience the ultimate authority instead of Scripture. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says, in this philosophy, the end always justifies the means. The driving force behind decisions within the scope of pragmatism is the force of expediency. So, so that really is pragmatism in a nutshell. And we talked about some examples of pragmatism where individuals will change the message of the gospel in order to attract people, or, or they will change the worship to grow numbers. And so the question that I want us to consider today is, what is the solution to all of this. Maybe you're somebody who you had some pragmatic tendencies and you listened to the last episode and you realized that and now you're wondering, okay, what's the solution? How do we actually work through this? Or maybe you're in the midst of a pragmatic church. Maybe you're pastoring a church that has been given to pragmatism. Whatever the case may be, it's important for us to think biblically about how to bring a solution to bear here. I firmly believe, and I heard Dr. John MacArthur say this a little while back, that the antidote to pragmatism is understanding the sovereignty of God. The root problem of pragmatism is thinking that somehow, within an evangelical context, that somehow God needs our help, God needs our ideas. What he has revealed is not enough. We need to add to the text. So it's not it's not enough for us to simply do what we are commanded in Scripture to fulfill the commission that God has given to his church. We need to add an addition to the text in order to fulfill that commission. Now let's break that out a little bit. I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 first, because whenever we're talking about the mission of the church, integral to that is the plan of God to bring about the redemption of his people. And if we're talking about God's plan, this is a plan that he set in motion before any of us ever walked the face of the earth. This is his plan. This is his plan goal that he is going to achieve according to 
the way that he has set out, the way that he has purposed. So I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to read all the way from verse 3 through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I I, want to point out a couple of things about this passage. First of all, we, we see the work of the Trinity all over the place here in this text. Father, Son, and Spirit all three involved in the in the eternal covenant of redemption that the triune God covenanted to redeem a people for himself, Father, Son, and Spirit all having a role. It's all planned according to the Father. It is purchased by the Son. It is sealed by the Spirit. But I want you to notice a phrase that keeps coming up as we walk through this text. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 9, according to his purpose. Verse 11, according to his purpose. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Do, do you notice who the emphasis is placed on here in this passage? It is placed upon the purpose of God. It is placed upon God working out his purpose and his plan according to his will for the praise of his glory. Where is any of that man-centered? Where is any of that telling us God needs our ideas and our help in order to achieve his purpose? God has already accomplished the redemption of his people at the cross. He does not need us to add to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Pragmatism does not understand that fact. Pragmatism makes the error of saying that God needs our ideas, our solutions, our inventions in order to achieve his purposes. But that's not the way this works. God came up with this plan long before he created us. This is an eternity past. This is before the creation of the world. God chose to redeem a people. God chose how he was going to do this. And if he chose how he is going to do this, that is every step along the way from the time of the fall, from the time of creation, from before creation, 
all the way through the cross of Christ, all the way through his resurrection, and at every moment in the church age, all the way to the consummation where we will reign with him forever and ever. It is all according to his purpose and his plan. Now, here's why that matters for the context of pragmatism. Because this is God's plan. It will be accomplished according to God's will. And we, as his people, must submit to that will and simply seek to be faithful to what he has commanded of us. Which one of us is able to look at the sovereign God of the universe and to come up with an idea that he hasn't thought of? That is utter foolishness. He is perfectly wise, perfectly holy, perfectly knowledgeable. What we as human beings need to do is to submit to him. Which brings me to my next text. We have to ask, what is the mission of the church? What have we been commissioned to do? And to that, we we turn to a text that's probably going to be very familiar to most of you listening to this podcast. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice the reliance upon Christ that our Lord teaches for his disciples in this text. We are to go out to the nations on the basis of the fact that he he has all of the authority in heaven and on earth. We are to go out to the nations, teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded. So we're pointing to him. We're pointing to his commands found in the scripture. And we are to go out to the nations knowing that he is with us always to the end of the age. This is Christ's commission. Christ is the one that we are being pointed to as the sufficiency for fulfilling this commission in obedience to him. And since Christ is the one through whom the great commission is fulfilled, as we as the church go out preaching the gospel, preaching the entirety of Christ's commands, baptizing the nations, discipling the nations, calling them to faith and to repentance and teaching them everything that is revealed in Scripture. As we do that, this text does not tell us to look to our own selves in order to fulfill all of this. It tells us to look to Christ. It tells us that on the basis of his authority, we're to go out. It tells us that he's the one who is always with us. It's his commands we're teaching. That is a refutation of pragmatism. Because this, this is not our commission. This is not our mission that we came up with. This is not our goal that we invented. This is Christ's goal. And that means that we must submit to Christ's word as we go out doing this. Now, you might be wondering, are, are we free to invent whatever we want in the worship of God? This is a critical question because it's something that comes up whenever you're addressing the issue of pragmatism here. So we're, we're progressing from the fact that 
the eternal the, the work of redemption is an eternal plan of God that is unfolding. The great commission given to the church is a plan of God unfolding. We're submitting to him in these things. But pragmatism would have us to believe that we change and we adapt on the basis of what we as humans see and experience. So, for example, you need to modernize the worship service. One issue that we specifically addressed in the last episode was the idea that you need to have young people up on the stage leading the worship service in order to appeal to the younger generation. We talked about why that idea is is problematic. Um, I would reference you to that podcast, which will be in the show notes below. But the fundamental idea is we change the worship service. And I want to give you a text here. Whenever a couple of individuals in the Old Testament decided to change the way they worshiped God. Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and burned and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Whenever we're talking about the worship of God, the issue is not what appears to experientially work according to our view. The issue is how has he commanded us to worship him? That's the difference between pragmatism and submitting to scripture as we have been commanded. Pragmatism says you can go ahead and you can change however you want to, however you deem best in the situation. Biblical Christianity has us open up the word and worship God as he has commanded. We are not free to reinvent the wheel. We are not free to come up with our own ideas as to how we are to worship God. We are to submit to his holy will. We are to submit to how he wants to be worshipped. We are to submit to him in every regard. Another text which reinforces this is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul is writing to his young son in the faith. And it's particularly interesting to notice why he writes this first epistle. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. If I delay, you may, know, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In verse 14, leads into that by saying, but I am writing these things to you so that. So, so this is why First Timothy is written, so that the young pastor might know how he is to conduct himself. Because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church exists for the glory of God, and we must submit to how he has called us to act. And so fundamentally, this is a major issue within pragmatism. Is It's telling us you can reinvent the will, you can do this according to what you think is best, according to human experience. But what scripture has us realize in the example in Leviticus and the example here in First Timothy, 
is that's not the way that God has commanded his people. God has commanded his people to worship him as he has deemed. He has given them instructions as to how they are to conduct themselves. And so pragmatism is wrong on these points. And so what do we see so far in terms of building out an antidote to pragmatic ideas? Well, pragmatism is erring in a major way by essentially telling human beings that they are the ones who, according to their ideas, come up with all of these methods, come up with all of these ideas, come up with all of these plans for how the church should operate. What we see over and over and over and over again in the scripture is that God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who initiates the plan of redemption. God is the one who calls the people for himself. God is the one who institutes the church. This is Christ's church, not our church. God is the one who reveals himself to his people so that they might submit to him. True power for the church is not found in following man-made ideas. It is found in submitting to the word of God. That is what builds a healthy church. That is what builds a fruitful local congregation is submitting to the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to how we're called to love one another. Submitting to how we're called to worship him. Submitting to how we're called to go out and to preach the gospel. Submitting to all of the commands that we see in the word of God. It's not by inventing our own plans. It's by being obedient. That's what we're called to do. Another major issue that pragmatism has here, and this is another area that we have to talk about if we're to talk about the antidote to pragmatism, is the fact that it really takes a shot at the sufficiency of Scripture. And so an antidote to pragmatism is not only understanding the sovereignty of God, it is understanding the, the sufficiency of the Word of God. I want to read to you 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 2. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now listen, this is actually a very interesting context that Paul is writing this in. Because as you study First and Second Timothy, you learn that Timothy is not in smooth waters here. Paul's not writing this in a context where he's addressing this young pastor, just hoping to give him a pep talk because everything's already going well anyway, and so he just hopes to give a little bit of an encouragement. No, he's addressing this specifically in the context where Timothy is having to battle false teaching. He's having to battle issues going on in the church. And I want to give you a couple of passages in this 
regard so that we can see this very, very clearly. I want to read from 1 Timothy here to start us off. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we come from verse 1 through verse 12. But all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Listen to this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So why does Paul have to tell Timothy about these individuals who are teaching a different doctrine? Why does Paul have to tell Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith? Because Timothy is in the midst of a battle. Timothy is fighting against false teachers. He's having to go through all kinds of issues in this situation, and he needs to be reminded, Timothy, you're not like them. You're not like the false teachers. Timothy, you're here to battle the false teachers. In fact, that's why he left Timothy in Ephesus to begin with. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's why Timothy is left here in Ephesus, so that he can correct those who are preaching wrongly. So, what does that have to do with pragmatism? Well, as we come into 2 Timothy, we see he's he's in the same situation. And, and, and just to give you a quick example here, 2 Timothy 3.8. Just as Janus and Jamrus opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So he's still having to deal with these false teachers who are trying to pervert the truth of Christ. Um, another example is 2 Timothy 4, 15, 14 through 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will pay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So that's a specific individual who Paul tells Timothy, hey, you have to watch out for this guy because he's opposing the truth. So Timothy's still very much in the same scenario. And if there's ever a time that 
you would possibly think, according to those promoting pragmatism, that you would buy into that idea, wouldn't it be whenever the church is in chaos? Like, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I'm saying wouldn't that be what they would tell you, those promoting pragmatism, that when the church is up in flames, when the church is in chaos, when you have false teachers everywhere where you're having to do with all kinds of division, that would be when you would go to pragmatism, according to their view, right? What does Paul tell Timothy? Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you need to preach the word. Timothy, you need to stand up and you need to herald the truth of God. You need to rebuke with the truth of God. You need to exhort with the truth of God because it is the word of God that is sufficient to complete you for this task. He doesn't tell Timothy, Timothy, go out and come up with your own ideas. Timothy, go do what seems right in your personal experience. He says, Timothy, submit to the scripture. Timothy, preach the scripture. Timothy, be courageous in your heralding of divine truth that is revealed by God in the word of God. He doesn't go to pragmatism. He doesn't. He goes to scripture. And he tells Timothy, you need to submit to the scripture. Timothy, here's how you're to conduct yourself. Timothy, here's what you need to be preaching. That is another refutation of pragmatism here by the Apostle Paul. He doesn't go there. And he's addressing a situation where Timothy is in the midst of much trial, and he doesn't tell him to go to pragmatism, which is very insightful for us whenever we're thinking about this issue. But why wouldn't Paul tell Timothy to go to pragmatism here? What, what would be wrong with Timothy just simply coming up with his own ideas? I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want to jump down to verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Friends, the wisest thing that the world can come up with, according to human wisdom, isn't even close to God. It's not even in the same ballpark. Whenever we preach the message of the cross, we are submitting and we are proclaiming a message that lost individuals count as scandalous and as foolish. And yet that is the plan for the victory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the powerful message that we proclaim. If we fall prey to simply giving in to worldly wisdom, coming up with our own ideas according to the wisdom of the flesh, 
we're falling prey to the exact same thing that the church in Corinth did, elevating human wisdom in a prideful way. And what Paul says is he didn't do that. He preached Christ crucified. And that's the distinction. So what is the antidote to pragmatism? The antidote to pragmatism is understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ is the king, that God is sovereign, and that God will accomplish his purposes, and that what he has given to us, the scripture, the gospel message, prayer, these weapons are sufficient for accomplishing the task that he has commissioned to us as his church. We do not need to add to them. We do not need to take away from them. We simply need to submit in obedience and be faithful to use them. Understanding those truths, that is the antidote to pragmatism. And so we must apply them for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as preachers preaching the word of God, we must seek to teach the people of God all of these truths that are revealed in Scripture so that they might be matured, so that they might be edified. We must do so with complete love, complete patience, and complete assurance that God will accomplish His intended purposes no matter what they are through the declaration of the truth of His Holy Word. Thank you so much for taking the opportunity to listen today. I hope that you found this little two-part series on pragmatism helpful. Be sure to check out the ChristianManifesto.org where there are all kinds of blog posts ranging from politics to theology to apologetics. We address all kinds of issues there. You can find myself, Jared Links, on Twitter or Facebook down in the show notes below. Until then, remember to study the Word of God that you may be always ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. God bless.